All right, so um, Nigel Owens, um, delighted to have you on. Thanks very much for coming on. My pleasure. Uh, what a remarkable career and interesting career you've had in many ways. Most uh, most capped referee in Test Rugby Union history. And it all started on a council estate in, in West Wales. What are, your, what are your memories growing up there? Yeah, a small village, really rural community in West Wales called Munniv Carrig. And if you translate that to, to English, it translates to Mountain of Stone. And um, just a council estate of 12 houses and then a couple of houses sort of up the back road, a couple of small, small farms which my grandparents were living on when I was brought up. I was five years of age before I moved my mum and dad then to the council estate. And then a couple of terrace houses at the bottom of the street, and, and that pretty much was it. Uh, there used to be a chip shop there, but that burnt down, and I have a vague memory of being very, very young, just remembering being burnt down when I was probably about four or five years of age. And there was a post office there, um, but all, I saw that sold to stamps, um, no sweets, no nothing. And then you had the Workingmen's Club, which is still there, and the primary school then, which which I went to, which which unfortunately closed now about 10, 10 11 years ago. And I was brought up there in in, in the seventies, um, and only a population of one hundred and forty people in really? the whole village, with about fourteen of us in in the small school. Just, and, you know, just being, the one school, obviously. It was very small, yeah. And being brought up there in in, in the nineteen seventies, well. Um, you know, if, if if you imagine what being brought up there in the 1970s is like, then uh, then go there now because <laughs> because nothing's changed, which is not a bad thing. Really, uh, even with kind of people having the access to smartphones, because I was down in rural Ireland recently, which would be much different where I'm from, to Dublin, and I used to walk in there and it was like a John Wayne film. They'd literally be going, "What is this alien? Get out of here before we drown you in a bath of Guinness." But I kind of found that. This time was a bit different. Everyone seemed a tiny bit more culture because everyone's kind of everyone's looking at the same people on Instagram, which it didn't seem that foreign anymore. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's true, but it's still very sort of old fashioned in its way. You know, a smaller yeah. community. The community's grown a bit. There's you know quite a few more houses being built there. There's been an influx of people moving in there from quite a few from outside Wales, some within Wales. And uh, when I was brought up there, I. My first language is Welsh. I couldn't speak really, English. Yeah? yeah, couldn't speak English until I was about eight years of age. I was what? taught English in school and only started conversing in English when I was about seven, eight years of age. So the population of the village back then would have probably been about 95% Welsh speakers, Welsh wow. speaking only a lot of the older generation. But now it's changed to probably about 50-50 now. Is Welsh probably. still a surviving language? Cause yeah, like, it is. It's yeah? Uh, 20% of the population and uh, there is a name to get it up to to half a million speakers and the population of Wales is just over three million by, by twenty fifty. Yeah. So it is Do you think that's important to, to hugely grow important. Hugely, for what hugely for what important. reason? If it's not necessarily especially the the world's going, it's it's not you can't couldn't really commercialise that language in any way, could you? Is it just for heritage reasons? Well, there's a few reasons I think. I think first of all, if if you're gonna think that you know everything is is just for the sake of being commercial. Oh no, I wouldn't think that. Know, but I know, I know yeah. you'll think that, but then you're gonna lose your sense of identity. Um, you're gonna lose your culture, your history, uh, and I think probably the most important part of your culture and your history is probably your language. That's the heartbeat mm. of the country, and um, it's still a, a very much used language in Wales today. Yeah. The, the Welsh media, a lot of public sector jobs, a lot of companies require the ability of a person working for them to speak Welsh because. For myself, if I converse naturally and feeling comfortable in conversing, it would be Welsh. Really? So, yeah. And look, like about to drive off a cliff, you're yeah. screaming in Welsh to yourself in the yes, car. Yes, yeah. Like. And a lot of the old generation Mad. would be, would be very, you know, would be struggling with, with with English. So they would naturally 
you know, there's, there's a lot of doctor practices was a requirement for the doctor to be able to yeah. speak Welsh because it's, if you go to see the doctor with any issues, whatever it may be, yeah. mental health issues or whatever, it's, it's important that you're comfortable in yourself and yeah. be able to talk about them and people feel comfortable in speaking their own language. So I think it's hugely important and it's, you know, it is, it's a huge, huge important part of Wales, you know, and, um, and I, when, when I go to Ireland, you know, a lot of people in Ireland are amazed that we still have 20% of the population yeah, that speaking is, that's, in. Yeah, that's that's mad. And then the funny thing is this, you see, when you speak to people in Wales now who are in their 18, 20, 30s, 40s, all of them will tell you, oh, my, my father spoke Welsh or my mum spoke Welsh. Oh, I wish I'd had learnt Welsh, you know, wish I could speak Welsh. Yeah. And a lot of them now are making sure that the kids speak Welsh. And the same when you go to Ireland, there's so many people in Ireland say, oh, you know, I really wish, you know, I'd be able to use the language yeah. more and it was part of everyday life. Well, in Wales, it is still an important part of everyday life. And what's amazing is kind of, we touched on the fact that it's a council estate. And something that I find very unique in Wales is I'm not too sure if you're kind of aware of, how Irish society works but rugby is purely an upper middle class game in Ireland and to an extent the same in England if you look at the percentage I'm not sure that people of Munster and Limerick would agree with you yeah, mind, well like uh, a lot of them still were privately educated you know what I mean it wouldn't be as accessible to the working class as it is in Wales do you know what I mean Munster really likes selling the image of being the kind of working class voice but in reality a lot of those guys would have grown up on acres of land but and been privately educated. Would be, the huge amount of the Munster supporters yeah. would be very similar to, to the Welsh supporters. You know, the, the rugby clubs in Wales were built up around the mining and communities, mm. in particularly in South Wales, and then when a lot of people from South Wales moved to North Wales, and then rugby became established in certain places around quarrying communities and communities in North Wales yeah. as well. So, And people always ask, why is there such a difference respect in rugby and in football? And people say it's a class thing. And I say, well, maybe there is a point in that. But then I said, when you look at Wales, Wales rugby is a working class game. Yet that value of respect yeah. is the same as any other country. For example, so like Gareth Bale being in the same class as Sam Warburton, just, mm. that just would not occur, let's say, in Ireland mm. or England. The only time a footballer and rugby player would meet would probably be over verbals and a music festival. I think that is changing slowly. I think, you know, rugby in, in Ireland, particularly with the success of of Ulster in 1999 in the European mm. Cup and Connors rise recently as yeah. well and, and Munster and Leinster particularly in the European Cup and the Irish success in the Grand Slams of, yeah. of late. You know, rugby in Ireland has, has increased in the huge, in the popularity hugely and I think across all classes really and, and that's what it should be. It should be a game for all. In the past it maybe wasn't as accessible for yeah. people and, and now I think it is breaking down those barriers in, in, in so I, many ways. I don't know if you're aware of the Leinster School Senior Cup so basically it's the it's the school's cup between teams in Leinster and yep. in terms of internationals produced I'd, I'd presume that only Auckland nearly has a better ratio of how many internationals this competition churns out every mm. single year at least three or four yep. are going to play top provincial rugby and two or three be capped nearly I'd say 98% of schools compete in that are private schools mm. and a national government funded school has never won that cup and that's where the players are still coming from so I think that like Yes, they've put a rugby pitch into working class areas and they've sold a few more Leinster jerseys and places like Tala, but the culture behind the game still is in the golf clubs and the financial firms, from where I'm standing in Dublin anyway. Well, I, I, I you know, I'm not as privy as, as to that as you are, but, but, I, but I think as well, when you, I suppose the pressures on public funded schools compared to independent schools, where independent schools can spend more time on better resources maybe, 
particularly on the sports side of things, employ people in to coach strength and conditioning coaches, more time to practice a rugby within the school yeah. environment and the school timetable. So that obviously is contributing a huge amount to the success, whereas mm -hmm. you know, your state-funded schools don't have the ability to do that as, as much and kids are more, you know, I, I have to follow a timetable stricter, getting to, you know, I went to a, a, a state-funded school and, it was difficult to get time off to play your rugby, particularly to, to yeah. you, know, you had to do it after school and, and, and things like that. So I think there's many, many different different reasons. But it's the same back in Wales. Before the grammar schools were phased out in Wales, I was the last sort of year who went to the grammar schools and they were phased out then after being there in one year in Wales. And, and in Wales, the grammar schools were traditionally big, strong yeah. rugby schools. But now it's changed. You have... All various types of schools in Wales now, particularly the Welsh. The Welsh medium schools are very strong rugby schools as well. You know the way league went professional before Union. Yes, it did. Yeah, yeah, yeah so yeah. so oh, yeah, called league, and and that was because, because it was yeah. So so basically, what I read or what a theory I've heard is that basically rugby union was being played widespread, but the labourers who were playing in order to take the time off to engage, needed money. So they invented the game of league, so they went to the paying version of it quicker than the lawyers and the accountants yeah. and the solicitors I'm who remained playing union. I'm not sure if it was like that. From, from I was spoken in a rugby club up in in in, in, in the heartland of, of, of rugby league, and um, my understanding was, it, and, I, and I could totally be wrong, from what I was told, is was that because all the working class, like Wales, particularly in sort of areas of, you know, Liverpool, that area, Wigan, yeah, Witness, yeah. all that area, Leeds... We're playing rugby union. But then what I believe happened was, or what I was told happened was that because they were working on a Saturday morning, to get time off to play rugby, they were still getting paid on a Saturday morning. So I think some other areas complained that these guys are literally getting paid for playing because they should be in work today in the, fa in the mines or in the factories, mm. but they're still getting, because it was good publicity yeah. for that you know for for the community or for the mining community whatever it may be so they were getting paid basically to pay to play even though they weren't they were just getting time off without losing pay and that's where i think a bit of fuss started off and then it split then they they, they sort of the, the sort of the working class in that area split then away from rugby union to set up their own rugby league from the the fallout that happened from that I think, I think that something similar to what the background of it was and what I was was told and so even you're pretty though, much right in what you're saying even though sense. rugby league exceeded rugby union in the speed it became professional do you think that the fact that kind of the class split happened and it was more the working class who went towards league do you think the fact that rugby union could market itself so much more effectively and now has outgrown the game of league and probably does have more money in it definitely in the UK is due to the fact that it had on its side well, the I, rich well I think. You know, I'm a big, a big fan. I enjoy rugby league. I sort of tend to. I don't watch it now as much as I used to. Um, and you and you a just lot watch English stuff, do Because um, the standard in Australia is probably. Yeah, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't sort of, you know, for rugby league. I used to watch quite a bit of it, and it's probably because of the Welsh interest back in the sort of eighties, early nineties, yeah, when yeah. a huge amount of Jonathan Davises and Cornell, Scott Gibbs, and the likes of these people went went north. Yeah, yeah. And Wales had a hugely, um, uh, hugely talented rugby league side then. Um, and used to follow more of it then. It was also on terrestrial television, you know, yeah. and you never underestimate as well the amount of influence terrestrial television has because it's accessible of to course, everybody, yeah. particularly yeah. working class. You know, when when rugby league moved to pay TV, well, a huge amount of the people in Wales didn't have pay TV yeah. and certainly wouldn't afford or couldn't afford 
to buy a rugby league subscription when rugby union probably was what they were following first of all. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. rugby league sort of fell off a bit, I think, in popularity in, in Wales when the game went professional and the players came back from rugby league and it wasn't as accessible to many people on television anymore. Quite similar to what happened to cricket as well over that sort of period of time. Um, I think that working class element to Welsh rugby, though, does kind of, like, Wales are an unpredictable country. They can go from a team who are absolutely no threat to Grand Slam winners within a 12-month period. They've done that numerous times in the last 15 years, for example. And sometimes people forget just how much Wales have won in the last, let's say, 15 years. Grand Slam 05, 08, 11, and now 19. Ireland, arrogantly enough, definitely our media, and the way the kind of world media would nearly have us above Wales throughout that whole period, the O'Garas, the O'Driscolls, kind of reputation-wise or legacy-wise, exceed the Joneses and people like that, even though they've won much more, knocked them out of World Cup er, quarter-final in 2011. Wales' kind of turnover of players, like, do you remember the number eight, Michael Owen? Mm. Where'd he go? Where do some of the Welsh players go? Do you yeah, know what I mean? Finished with injury, Michael Owen did. I, I, I'm a referee, Michael Owen, when he was playing for the Drewish Shield under 15s uh, competition then in school. I remember refereeing him then and sort of refereed his rise, really, and you know was part of that as he, as he well, not part of it, but you know, refereeing what he was coming through. He's, I think he's teaching in a, in a school uh, in, in England somewhere, now, a rugby school somewhere, uh, when I spoke to him last a couple of years ago. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I look. There's a beauty to it because yeah, it is. mixes the it mixes different forms of people. Where there's a default character for a rugby player in Ireland, you're either the hardy monster guy or you're the clean cut, like do you know, what I mean? brunch avocado on toast Leinster guy or the Connacht guy who doesn't get selected or the Ulster guy who. Well, that's the same in Wales. You see, there was a big big view in Wales years ago that unless you played for Clannelly, Cardiff, Swansea. Newport, maybe you, you, you weren't sort of in the frame to be picked for Wales, although some did, you know, the sort of then most, like the unfashionable clubs then, you know, like Pontypridd and all these clubs, yeah. you know, um, sort of weren't sort of, you know, if, if Clinetti were playing on a Saturday afternoon and Pontypridd were playing on a Saturday afternoon, then, then all the, the, the media scribers and stuff would be down in Stradley Park watching Clinetti play yeah. somebody and maybe... You know, not as much up in Pontypridd watching. So all the sort of yeah. things that were in the press and sort of written about would, would be those main big, big clubs, maybe. Um, but the not, atmosphere, not true in all the you can see it in the atmosphere as well. Like the the Principality Stadium, not just size wise, but like in terms of noise and general passion of fans, it's 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 different level to what we have back home. Like the old Lansdowne Road. Did you ever ref there? Yeah, I did. I refereed in Lansdowne Road, Croke Park and in the Aviva. Did you, yeah? yeah? What would you say about the difference between Lansdowne Road and the Aviva? Honestly, though, it isn't the same. Lansdowne has something, that, uh, the history, you could kind of nearly feel the independence of Ireland as a nation, the cottage in the corner. It's just reeked of Irish love of the your own country. It's a very similar stadium. You know, you're still, it's a, it's a great stadium. You're still Atmosphere-wise, though. Well, yeah, you're, but that could be due to more with the people who are in the stadium rather than the stadium yeah. itself. You know, it, we, are we... And that's a, what I'm kind of saying in a way. Yeah, are we in, a, in, a, in an era now where... Corporates are getting the tickets. Corporate, the cost maybe for your sort of traditional rugby supporters, businesses will, you know, buy tickets for their clients who may go there and enjoy rugby and, and, and that's great and they're a new audience to rugby and, mm. and it's hugely important professional leader that you have that business background yeah. to support and, and help fund the game from one sense but then maybe some of them will go there and just enjoy the game and not really 
passionate and jumping up and down like the traditional supporters would be in, in who's winning or when a yeah. team scores and all. So I, f- I think there's a lot of that to, to be said. And the Millennium Stadium is a great stadium. There's, there's no doubt about that. But you've got to remember as well, you know, when the Viva is full, they have, what, 51,000 there, maybe 52? Yeah. When the Principality is full, it's, it's 75,000. Yeah, so you're but there is at 24,000 more There's a certain air well. you're getting off the crowd that it means a lot more. I remember... I was going to a football game in Swansea to watch Man United play a few years ago. We had to pull up on the way in just some really rural Welsh town. And they were playing Australian and Autumn International. And there was people there who were basically acting like Millwall fans. Do you know what I mean? It meant that much to them. It was life and death. But pull up in an Irish bar, they're in bet- swapping between the Financial Times and the game. Well, I'm not quite sure if I agree with you on that as far as um, atmosphere and supporters wise go because if you you know one of, one of my favorite stadiums is is the Kingspan Stadium in the or the old Raven Hill in Belfast. Again though always. they're not really part of our they're not really the same country are they? Always. <laughs> but they aren't in fairness like they do play on the same rugby team yeah, as us well. but they aren't part of the same like like Jacob Stockdale and Keith Earls support different football teams at, if they both were in the World Cup. Yes, they play on the same rugby team in rugby. Yeah, but when you play as a rugby team, you play as... Oh, as of course, Ireland, of course. But Ireland, think, the rugby you know, team, is are... more a federation as opposed to a country. Wales uh, has that country thing. Scotland has the country thing. England does. We kind of know deep down, we are playing for the IRFU here. Ireland's Call was written by, like, songwriters in the 80s. It was like an anti-troubles anthem, nearly. There's something unpatriotic about the Irish rugby team. There's something that's just... It isn't the same. There's guys in the team who use different currencies. It doesn't come across like that from outside of Ireland, for sure. Really, maybe, yeah. Maybe it's, maybe it's an issue maybe within Ireland that people need yeah. to, need, maybe I people know, there's to address. No, yeah, and I know we've been... But tr- it's, the same, it's the same. You, you go to Galway. Look at Galway now. Eight, eight nine, ten thousand 10,000 in, in the sports world in Galway. Great atmosphere. Yeah. Passionate. Yeah. Go to Thorman Park, Musgrave Oh, Park, on a provincial level, Saudi. absolutely. Yeah, and on a provincial level. Even go to the RDS, level. you know, 18,000 in there. And you get a good atmosphere in there. Well, I think you do, yeah. yeah. You know, they're, they're as good as atmospheres anywhere else you get. In the, the RDS track, is. Yeah? The RDS's stands aren't even, like, they're not even real. They're actually, they're pushed in for games. Well, it doesn't matter what, what you've got to push in there. See, it's the people that are in there. You know, that's a, show, that's a show jumping field originally. Yeah, yeah, no, I know. It's, it's a great, I enjoy the stadium. Do you think RDS. so, yeah? yeah well, you'd only ref the big games there, though. You wouldn't be there on a Friday night in November. For well, a, I would be, yeah. Would no, you, I, yeah? I've been there doing, you know, all the Pro 14, uh, Pro 12 games, yeah, when there's only maybe... 12, 14, 15,000 there. And yeah, there's, you know, you make a call against Leinster and, and the crowd don't like it and they're booing and you know there's an atmosphere in that stadium. So, um, no, look, f- as far as I'm concerned, I don't see any sort of difference in the atmosphere. Would you notice the crowd when you're refereeing, like in terms of decision? Because in rugby, unlike football, it's either penalty and crowd concede on replay, corner, crowd concede on replay. But like, when someone's holding onto a ball, you're not going to call that the same seconds every single time. One one day you could call it after four seconds, another day he's trapped in a certain way. You call it after two. What instincts kind of lead to a rugby referee's decision when there is so much kind of autonomy over your decisions? Like they are different every game. Consistency is it's hard to met. Like you could have that could be the third time the flanker did that, so I'm penalised on this time. I mean, how much of a role is the crowd or magnitude of a game? Let's say play. No, I, I I think the first thing. The, m- the most important thing is that it, it, to understand it's a very complex game. A lot of different interpretation for you as a referee individually in the game and from other different referees will view what decisions differently to, to what you are. And you know, I may think something's a yellow card 
Another referee may think it's a penalty and we both can be right. He has his reason, which you can say, right, that's fair enough. And I will say, no, it's a yellow card for me because of this reason. And they say, yeah, that's fair enough. So you have basically two different decisions based on one decision and the both of us are correct. That, that's, that's the beauty of the game in one sense, but also maybe what uh, infuriates sometimes spectators in their understanding of the game. So the first thing you have to understand is that as long as the referee is consistent himself within the game, and also as well... But would you allow a team to piss you off if someone's battering away in a five-metre line for five minutes, there's hands on the deck, hands on the deck, scrum, kind of deliberately mistiming the engagement well, no, to make it complicated? As a referee if that happened, would you then punish that, though, by blowing for things that might have gone 50 no. Do you remember they were pissing me off on the line? I couldn't whip out two yellow cards. I could only give the one because I but didn't want to ruin the game. It's, a it's rare, though, because you know the effect that has on the scoreboard. But then what you have to do is... is take yourself away from that situation and deal with mm. what happens on the field. And if you go into the game and referee what is clear and obvious in front of you, get the decisions, look, clearly a penalty, you blow it. There are other decisions which are, oh, this is a tight one, it's really tight, it could go either way, and then if you have a bit of understanding and empathy for the game, then then you can let it go because it doesn't have an effect on what happens next. So yeah. if, if I was refereeing a game and something was nailed on two yellow cards within that phase of play, and I'm sorry, the two would go. Is that something you have to get better at over time? That comes with experience, actually. The important thing is that you referee the same decisions in the same way in the last 10 seconds or 10 minutes as you've done in the first 10 seconds or 10 minutes. And what people don't understand sometimes is there's a reason why you're a referee. Mm. The reason why you go through all the, the hassle you get people's views and Rugby must be frustrating because people don't know the rules the, like the 80% of people watching it in the bar they don't know like they know the forward pass they don't knock on but hands on the deck the complexities behind scrummaging they, no, they don't know that know. they don't know and, and, and then abuse on work, social media this can work both ways for referees I've I've come off a game sometimes and not, not refereed as well as I should have and everybody's going oh brilliantly refereed well refereed and I'm thinking no there were a couple of decisions in that game I got wrong which I shouldn't have got wrong then I've come off games when you, when you know um, you know, your peers will tell you when you know yourself, bloody hell, you know, that was a good job. That was a tough game and that was a good job of refereeing. And people are saying, oh, that's poor refereeing today. That, that's, that's a shit call. Or, yeah. And I'm thinking, because they don't understand the game. And I, sometimes I get comments of people. And if, if people comment me on social media and they cross that line of what I believe is acceptable or not, they call me a cheat, if they start using swear words, if they become personal, mm. start using homophobic terms yeah. or language. Then I then it's just a block. I'm thank sorry you're gone. Would you report ever? No, no. If it's I've reported one when it was really really nasty. Was that the Twickenham incident? Yeah, that, that was that was definitely. Well, that was brought to my attention by a lot of people. It was yeah. reported by a lot of people, and then obviously I I carried through with. And they got they got a two year ban and a. No, that that was that was different. Um, that wasn't on my social media. That was people in the. That was actually in the Slam talking about the guys in Twickenham. Yeah. yeah, and then there are other people on social media who will say, I disagree with that call, and then I will say, well if if they do it in a decent way I'll go back to them and say well look this is why I gave this call yeah. or this is the way we would judge this and some will come back and say oh I, I didn't think of it again. I didn't know that okay fair enough and then others come back and say no I still think it's a wrong call which is fine because for some it is the wrong call others it's the right call and there's also going to be people who say like because you've been such a kind of icon to an extent in the sporting gay community and that when you became a referee whatever when you were 16 and that teacher told you to pick up the whistle you never saw yourself becoming in a way a media superstar so because you've got yourself this platform um which a lot of it is a very good referee tells it like it is one-liners but there is also that other aspect is 
represents everything good about modern rugby in terms of the forward strides we're trying to, trying to make into anti-homophobia. What do you make of this kind of new narrative, especially post-World Cup final, and even ex-players coming out about you looking for limelight, trying to make the game about you, these kind of silly comments about your ego getting in the way and accusing the now previously loved one-liners of being attention-seeking? I, I think there's a few things here. I, I think, first of all, very, very few, probably one or two players who've come out in the media and passed those comments. Then you've got to ask yourself, why? Uh, there could be more behind it. Because what I have found since the World Cup, um, I haven't changed as a person. I don't think I'm a media superstar or, or a refereeing superstar. Mm. I'm probably... The most famous ref in the, well, in the it's world. Well, probably down to, to, and without blowing my own trumpet here, down to success because I, you know, like many other referees, there are other referees there who are as good or even better than me. Because I'm good at my job, you get the big games. You get the big games, you get the World Cup final. And then people become to know you because you do the right to the World mm. Cup final. There's also then, because I've spoken publicly um, about my sexuality and dealing with mental health issues, and the only reason I've done that, it happened by chance. I knew it was helping. I had a lot of letters and stuff from people saying it was helping them. Mum sent me a letter saying that it saved her son's life because he tried to commit suicide and, and reading this had helped him and the family come to terms with it. Mm -hmm. um, and then by, by, by speaking about that, um, you know, you become known for that as well. Yeah. Plus as well, the, the fact that, that I am gay in the macho world of rugby, also more people then know about that. And I do TV work and stuff and I speaking dinners and stuff I was on the stage at 14 years of age before I started refereeing so, so where do you all, think the accusations so I, stem from so I haven't I haven't done all this so I can be somebody somebody recognizes oh, yeah. this has just happened and of all course, I'm yeah. doing now is is pretty much dealing with the cards that have that have been dealt to me yeah yeah and that I'd view that as obvious but there still is that well, narrative yes and, and this is this is what the, this is what I've seen or realized the last two or three four five years people know Individuals, and they know who they are, people know that if they comment on a decision in a game by me, if I say something in the game, if they come out and have a go at me, rightly or wrongly, they Headlines. know they're going to get media exposure. They know yeah. that's going to help their, their new punditry career, their uh, podcast, their yeah, article. Yeah, yeah. They knew because if they wrote that about any other referee, no one cares. Nobody cares. But if they Maybe Barnes slightly. That's it. Well, Yes, it's like, you know, Wayne Barnes is a great Yeah, great but in terms of that, like, Owen's yeah. made a mistake. People but are waiting if, for it. If they would have mentioned Wayne Barnes, Jerome Gasset, Jakob Piper, Glenn Jackson, John Lacey, anybody else, nobody probably wouldn't, in all, and I mean this in a hugely respectful way, but if they say Nigel Owen's got this wrong, or Nigel Owen shouldn't be doing yeah. this, all of a sudden, you've got five or six different papers, yeah. five or six different podcasts, five or six different online um rugby sites yeah, yeah. then running that story because they know they're going to get people who don't like me some may not like me as a referee and that's fine everybody likes a different style some people out there won't like me because of my sexuality and and so I know sometimes some people hide behind their homophobia do you think so yeah oh, I no, no doubt about it I, I know I know sometimes people will have a go at me and you know you think it's, do you think that what the pay, because it sounds like it's kind of a journalistic problem. They're trying to have you bite back. And how much would the newspapers love you to accuse one of these ex-players of homophobia? 
that's more but or less you know, if you yeah, think about know, it it would be a great not, narrative to create I'm not particularly saying no I'm not saying you are saying no, that no, I'm no, saying I'm not saying it's, it's a particularly an ex-player but I say there are some people out there whether it's on social media or you know in, in all platforms who you can see the co comments are homophobic but covered by I'm gonna have a go at him because of his refereeing yeah. if I have a go of him about his sexuality then I'm in trouble so and something that I think I think a lot of people in now because obviously homophobia and the new kind of rise in LGBT culture it's positioned on the left side of, of politics so to speak and I saw an article recently where you talked about the Shane McGowan song Fairy Tale in New York where that the words used obviously the derogatory term to describe a gay person and you did say listen this was the culture at the times so this is just absolutely silly to get this song off the airwaves if you have an opposing opinion now in the world that isn't anti-trump uh pro-gay which of course you should be but some people didn't have the luxury of that education or upbringing to understand why that's okay like israel Falao's dad came out telling him that if he takes down his twitter post he's going to hell so if you actually think about it like that guy was it's kind of you nearly have sympathy nearly towards that level of ignorance raising you you know i do i, I usually do and, and this is the problem i spoke in uh, an lgbt event in, in in london here last night um what you have at the moment is, and I'm not politically inclined in, in, in any way, I'd like to believe that I have a amount of common sense and respect people's different yeah. beliefs, uh, religion, politics, whatever it may be. And that is one thing that today's society lacks clearly is that respect. And what you have is this. When you have an extremism on the right, and when it becomes extreme, it becomes dangerous. When you have extremism on the left and it becomes extreme, equally becomes as dangerous. Equally as dangerous. And to me, those dangerous people on the extremes of the both are just as bad as each other. Exactly. And that is the issue you have. And I, I believe that political correctness has gone too far. There's no common sense, there's no context anymore in what, you know, if, 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 if you were to say something here to me as a joke and we both think it's funny. And somebody then out there maybe think, that's not, you know, that's offensive. Yeah. Um, there are some things that are offensive that are not acceptable. Of course. Quite rightly so. And political correctness is a huge important part in society, making sure that people are treated. And was something free. else originally to what it's become nowadays. Yeah, it's, it's become a tool for the extreme left now. Yeah. And because of that, you now have a fight back in one sense from the extreme right. And this is where you have these dangerous extremisms. Yeah. And it's the same as religious beliefs. I have a huge amount of of sympathy and understanding and I have respect for Falau as a rugby player and I have a respect for him as a as a person in one sense in the fact that he's so narrow-minded in his religious beliefs. I can understand why he has behaved like that yeah. and I don't respect his view whatsoever. I respect his right to have that view. And I understand that when you're brought up in that sort of religious beliefs. Now, I was brought up on a council estate, went to chapel, went to Sunday school, taught the way of the world by my mum and dad of you get older, you get a girlfriend, you get a, mm. uh, get married, you get kids, you become a grandparents, and that's the way the world keeps on going. How were they about you being gay? Your parents? No, they were they were fine. They supported me one 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 hundred. You're an only child. You're an only child. An eh? only child. Yeah. yeah. So then I was brought up in in that belief, and then when that sort of 
at 19 years of age when I realised, well, I'm different to this. It was very difficult because that's what I was taught up to believe. It was only so 19. It's the same. It's the same as the likes of of Israel Falau and people who've been brought up this Absolutely, way. I can yeah. understand that. What I would like them to, and, and I totally respect their right to have their beliefs, but I'd also like them to understand that when these scriptures were written thousands and thousands mm. of years ago, it's very different to what society is today. And, I'm, and I believe in God myself, and I'm pretty sure if, if God was writing those scriptures today, he would not, whatever God you follow, they would not be writing them the same way. And you also have what to understand... What kind of God do you believe in? I, got, I went, went to chapel and um, a, a Christian. Um, yeah. And Even though the kind of stance on homosexuality well, is very I, I dubious. It's, it, it, it's up, it, you see, it depends on which way you interpret it, the Bible, really, in that sense. And also, yeah. as well, I believe... I believe there was... I believe in God. I believe there was a good person like Jesus Christ. But I also believe... That what was written in the Bible at those times and passed down and added on and maybe things altered were done for a reason to have an influence on religion or society mm. during that period. So if you say that, you know, if you put Jesus Christ as a person, wrote that Bible, for example, yeah. when he then passed away and those things were passed on, you know, and people and then were, came back to life. Is what they the say, evidence though. and everything like that yeah. of, of you know things, scriptures that were written and lost and burned. Fictional writers of yeah, their time, yeah, pe though. Yeah, people have written stuff down to have their influence on. Yeah, the I think that in a way, these guys were all openly, nearly fiction writers, to an extent. I mean, and I respect the fact that you believe in God. Well, that, I think the back, the backbone. Of do you believe in miracles? Do you actually believe in the water to wine and the rising from the dead? Stuff? No, I don't know. I don't no. believe in. I don't believe in. in you believe they're metaphorical. Yes, to an extent, I, yeah. I don't believe in the water and the wine, but I, you know, I, I do believe in in the backbone of the Bible, in a lot of its morals and, and yeah. a lot of its stuff. I, I believe in that. I believe there was a person like Jesus Christ who did a lot of these good things, and I think then. That some of those things, turning the water into wine, I think, was something that was added on to this to make it... But you probably have a biased biographer following him around, not writing the negative traits of, of his well, human existence. Day, isn't it? You of know, course, people, yeah, people, but then we dig up the negative yeah, and the positive and people, we try... People, people who will write your book for you today, and you work with that book, will write it in a positive way. Yeah. If somebody then doesn't like you and they will write a book about you, they will write it in a negative way. Do you have a, do you have a book? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like my Welsh one came out in 2008 and my English one came out in 2009. It's, it's called Half Time and it's, it's still selling till today, actually. Do you feel pressure because you have become this figure in the LGBT commun community? But, but you became that probably in 07 is when you came out, yeah? So it was slightly different then. Well, it, it came out in 2005, but it was sort of publicly in 07, yeah. But now it's changed. Now it has gotten as an overall kind of like genre of political policy homosexuality and it's kind of not just that trans uh, pro-abortion it's all become slightly aggressive do you feel pressure to go with that or else kind of lose your status in that community or do you feel responsibility because you've been part of the kind of left community now for so long to keep no, them no, aware no, no, no. no not left but the kind of Let's get more open by the concept of homosexuality community. I think I still. I don't think you need to be on the left or the right for that. I don't believe. So, like, what would your what would your opinion be on on trans people in sport? Because what they're trying to do now is, and I personally believe it's over the top, is they're trying to say that if a man 
transitions to a woman he can compete with females in sports and they're breaking sprinting records over in the states and collegiate records in, in every form of sport if there was a former man who started playing women's rugby and he was rocking people rocking three people at once hitting flat lines and couldn't get tackled would you that that is something that is that is wrong it's a very very difficult one to answer that and i think you need more scientific research, you need more information, how they judge that the hormones of somebody's body to, to the normality of, of, you know, the amount of hormones that is acceptable for you to compete in, in, in that sport or in that, that race. So I can understand why um, we, we're at this sort of crossroads at the moment, I, I believe, in, in, in how this is going, how this is going to play out. And I, I think if you are... If you are a, if you are a man, and then you, you have a sex change and you become a woman, and you're because it's a mental feeling, though. Yeah, the, the, it's a yeah, and the hormones in your in your body are twice that amount of a woman. Mm. If you to compete in the same competition as them is is going to be unfair. Then I, I I believe. And when something gets that extreme, and and like part the original part of left wing culture was to promote women's sports. And now it's getting so hypocritical within its own aggression that suddenly we're going to have men playing in the women's sports. So in a way, when any type of ideology gets overly obsessive and overly forceful, mm. it crumbles within itself. And that's something that I actually see that's happening. What, that's, and that, I agree with you. And that's why I believe by going to this political correctness of extreme, by um, going to taking uh, equality to where it becomes... Um, extreme in the fact or I don't care if, if if this person is the best person with this job he's gay so we need to tick a box um, so you don't believe in kind of the the South African policy of hitting a black quota of players and stuff no, like that I, I don't and I even don't, though there were such racial issues before that if do what, you not needs think to they be, what I believe needs to be addressed is that everybody gets that opportunity that those kids when they go to school when they get job opportunities when they get older when they participate in sport that they get the opportunities and that is something they need to put right in society yeah it's a demographic because, problem as well. yes and I think when you then you then go to the to the extreme this is where it's holding back, I believe. You know, mm. I I speak up about equality, that people are treated the same, get the same opportunities, but I will not support an extremism of it where we just tick boxes. If if somebody told me in 2015, look, you're not the best referee for this final, but we're going to point you to the final because it'll look good on World Rugby. They wouldn't CP. tell you that, though. Well, if I got the hint of that, then they didn't have to tell me that. If I sort of knew that referee's better than me, and the only reason I'm getting this final because I'm gay is ticking a box for World Rugby and it's going to look good on their CV, the first openly gay man to referee a major world final, then I honestly would have said, I'm sorry, no. Appointed to the person who deserves this. And I think that is where we are going wrong, where we have known extremism too far, which is then causing the people we need to change to yeah. make sure everybody comes together on the equality yeah, yeah, and everything yeah. is now digging the heels and saying, exactly. no, that's not right. And, and, and I agree to one cent. Everybody should get... I don't care whether you're black, white, gay, straight, man or woman. If you are the best person to do that job, then you get an opportunity to do that job. If the best person to referee the World Cup final in 2023 is a woman, then she referees the final. A men's tournament or a women's tournament. Simple as that. If you're not the best person, then you shouldn't be doing the final. The but the seesaw effect of, because it was so one-sided, it can't just 
creak its way back up to a balanced level. You have to push weight on the other side in order to normalise things is, is the argument. So they're saying that women were so oppressed. Gays weren't even, it wasn't even legal 50 years ago. Blacks were, were slaves 200 years ago. In order to normalise this, we need to throw a bit more weight onto that side before it's like, okay, that's too much now, we have a level life. As opposed to just, come on, let's slowly bring them up. In a way, it has to be forced in order to normalise it well, quicker. Well, I do think it is because when you force things, you then cause people to rebel. Yeah, and exactly, I think yeah, this is yeah. where you have... You, you look at what happens in America now with, with sort of Donald Trump, for mm. example. There is no doubt he was voted in because a lot of people are fed up with the way things are going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You talk to people Brexit every day. as well. Yeah, people, people are getting... I'm getting fed up. People are getting fed up of political correctness. Oh, yeah. God, I can't... You know, we... we we can't play that Christmas song anymore now in case somebody thinks that that word is yeah. is going to offend somebody. For God's sake, it doesn't offend. It's not meant to... F- the actual writer of the song or singer has come out and said it is not... It's a character. Yeah, it's the character of, of, of that person at the time. Yeah. So those people now need to accept and say, right, okay, yeah. understand that. Let's move on. But it's like the milkshake not, thing. See, it's like throwing milkshakes over politicians because it's on that. That's immature, old-fashioned right-wing. Like that's what the white extremes were doing to the blacks in 1950s America and the diners. Throwing milkshakes over politicians and it's laughed at because he's Nigel Farage and he kind of has conservative views. It's the hypocrisy behind that. Once you lose the respect of people having different views, now. If you have extreme views, then you can become dangerous. Yeah. And then those people need to understand that that is not acceptable in today's society. But if you are to the right and you have those views, people should understand and respect that, even though they may not agree with your views, as long as it's not an extreme view, which, as I said, becomes unacceptable. And the same on the, on the left as well. If you become extreme... God, look, look, Mao Zedong in China and Stalin in Russia... Yeah killed and murdered more people than anybody else in the world. Yeah. And they were to the extreme on, on, on the left. And people are so quick to and use Trump's name and Farage's name and compare them with men like that as well, which yeah. is also a very dangerous, verbal tactic. To me, the biggest issue here is one, is that important, important value of common sense. Yeah. And as well in people respecting, look, I respect your, your view is, is to the right, which is fine. Nothing wrong with it as long as it doesn't become extreme and nasty and I I understand and respect your view to the left as long as it doesn't come to the extreme and, to the, and that I think what is lacking to, that's what we've seen today is is total lack of respect for somebody because they have a different political view and, to and social media has played its role in spreading that and as a guy who yourself had mental health issues in his late teens and 20s and you now look at the young um, do you sit back and wonder how much trouble you could have been in that place of insecurity in that place of comparative thought with other people if you were not only sitting in your house in Wales wondering who you are but whilst you were doing that you could log into a laptop and see people exaggerating in a positive way what they were and make you feel even worse how dangerous do you think social media is and if you could compare it to your life when you were going through the troubles you had well so social media can be hugely positive because it can help share the story that if you're going through a difficult time, there are people out there have gone through the same thing and that can be hugely helpful. Raising the awareness, people talking about some it. Some could find it patronising, though. It all, if some are like, let's say there's not a guy who hasn't survived mental health issues and you're not someone who's been through it, but you're just some kind of random person who has perfect makeup and expensive clothing and has a nice coffee in your hand and you go, text, it's okay to talk to 52203 and you put up your hands in a circular motion into a selfie stick and the person sitting there in a mental institution, they're hardly going, oh, they said it's okay to talk. In a way, they could be going, 
as if you know what the fuck I'm going through. So it can slightly come across as patronising as well. I think that comes down to the context you take thing, and that's maybe something that that, that you need to look at yourself. It's become you, you, cool, though. Well, otherwise, people are not going to say anything then. If people are going to take... And this is going back to what we said about political correctness. Some people try to sell, though, the idea of mental health for hits, for likes, for... like, it, like. I know that's, that's something different. If somebody is taking advantage of a situation in order to... You know, to to get themselves up there. Yeah, which some... social media is making very common. Though. Well, but there's that you know that's out of that's an individual issue then rather than mm. the the pluses of social media outweigh the negatives. There's a huge amount of Do negatives. Do so, yeah. I, well, I think so. Yeah, because when you sh- when you share things on social media and people share that story, raise awareness about campaigns that are hugely beneficial for for people, whatever those campaigns may be and raising awareness about it, raising awareness about a, a charity event or raising money for much-needed um, funds for a hugely important Yeah, um, but from a mental health charity. perspective, though. But it's the same say. thing. It's the same by sharing your mental health, by, by, if, by being able to go in on social media and understand that, God, that guy has been through exactly the same thing as I'm going through. He's got through it, or he's... He seems to be going through it. He's where he is. So that can help you then. If you want to turn it, you can turn anything into a negative. But what about the rise in suicide rates ever since social media has become a phenom? Is it actually a rise in suicidal rates or is it because of social media we are more aware of it now? Of the notion of suicide? Or aware of the fact that suicide occurs? there There may have been... But they would have, they're done in like, they would have been funeral homes and death certificates would, would cover the fact. Like, suicide yeah, but rates you know, were if always. If you go so back before social media, you there could have been the same amount of suicides. I'm not saying there is or mm-hmm. there isn't, but there could have been the same amounts of suicide 30, 40 years ago. But we here wouldn't know about that amount of suicide because you're not. You're not of course, but like, so, yeah, but people would reference back to those times and have from death certificates accurate stats of how yeah, many people were killed. Yeah, but nobody does that. You, you just you, people don't. You, nobody can go out there and look at people's deaths to see how they they. But uh, when they say the rise in suicide rates are up, because normally how it went is there was a link to recessionary times and economic collapses because of the financial strain people yeah. were under. So in the nineteen eighties, there was a there was a spike yeah. when Wall Street crashed years ago spike then 2009 spike coincided with Facebook Twitter all these things yeah, and it, it never does, went down it, it kept does, rising it does contribute to it there is no doubt about that it contributes to it but but suicides have always been happening we are more aware of it now mental health has always been an issue but we are more aware of it now because people are talking about it so and I, and I don't like saying we want to make mental health issues and normality we don't we wish there was no mental health issues but the fact that people are talking about it helps people i've been i speak pretty much two or three four times a month in events on mental health issues and the amount of feedback i get that it's helped people within that workplace people that they know help them understand it a bit more so the benefits of that to me outweigh the negatives of it by by, by a long long way but the problem you have with social media it does give a platform for these idiots who hide behind a, f- a fake profile, a fake name. And to me, this is where s- the social media platforms, your Twitters, your Facebook, your Instagram should be clamping down. And if you can't say anything and put your name or face to it, then don't say it at all. Why? Why? why it's, it's not a freedom of speech. It's, 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 it's bullshit when people say, oh, you're taking away people's freedom of speech. No. If you want to have a freedom of speech, but 
well, be man enough, a woman enough yeah. to say it so people know who you are. But and if you, if, you, if you feel you need to say something because you can only say it because you don't want people to know you're that type of person, then oh, come on, yeah. you're beyond the limit. But as somebody who obviously like there was in your in your twenties, in and around the time of your mental health issues, there was um bulimia, mm-hmm. um, there was steroid abuse, which in a way stemmed to a body image issue. Would you agree with that? It's yeah, from yeah, insecurity yeah, it, around your body. Yeah, it, it would it, it's it the dealing with my sexuality in nineteen years of age, as I said yeah. earlier, being being brought up knowing not different and then becoming somebody different who I didn't want to yeah. to become. That started the mental health issues, the anxiety, scared of being yeah, yeah. Up, really so worried. somebody who had those those yeah. eating disorders, let's say. And then the eating yeah. disorder came then Surely Instagram and these things are promoting the importance of how you look physically to an unhealthy extent. And if there was people with eating disorders in the eighties and the seventies, as you're saying, statistically it's exploding. People as young as 12 with anorexia. This is quite clearly an issue because as society, we're pushing people who are in physical shape to the top because without them having to speak or use any intellect, it's a quick snap. Here's my ass. Here's my stomach. Make me a star. That's not how the world... That's, that cannot be healthy for the minds of the young. No, it's not. And, and that's why I wrote an article about a year ago about Love Island. Mm. If, if Love Island is... What people are going to be, um, and what, what what do you call them? And what are those seven programs called now? What are they? Reality, reality, shite, right, yeah, right. whatever. So if you want it to be reality, yeah, then make it reality. Reality is not you're going to get twenty group of people with the perfect bodies. You need everybody in there to give the image of what normality. This is what yes. normal day life is. Yes. So this is the problem I have. This is the problem I think we have is again extremism. So when you have Instagram posts of extremism, the six-pack, the perfect shape body, which is pushing, pushing that, then you have an issue. What you do want is to promote healthy eating, healthy exercise. So you want people, you want to encourage people to look after their body, look yeah, after their mind. That's not, yeah, that's not what those shows are doing. No, but, but it's going to the extreme, because, and that's yeah, the issue. So yeah. when you keep it in context of normality, yeah. then that is benefit. To encourage, but the healthy eating yes, thing has it, always been sold in, from yeah, a but, sexual point of view, though. Who gives a shit? Like, no, no one's sitting there going, I want to make people eat broccoli and have a healthy respiratory system. It's, I want people to believe they can have my ass if they follow me. They sell the healthy eating thing so they can't be criticised by technical people with scientific knowledge that they're not basically selling the same thing as Carmen Electra and Pam Anderson were 20 years before. It is soft porn, this Instagram culture of squatting and doing sit-ups. And they're selling the same thing as Hugh Hefner was selling. It's just masked by this healthy eating and fitness culture. Yes, but then it's, it, it's again, it's, it's an extremism view mm. of it, isn't it? And that's the danger. That is the danger we have of extremism. And people haven't learned the lessons from the past of when extremism becomes dangerous. If you go into, and, and this is where it's important that information is out there to counteract that argument, to say, now look, this is extremism of, you know, of, 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 of health. This is not healthy eating, this is dangerous eating. And, and you need that information so people can understand. Education plays a huge part in this, in educating kids. Look, if you're gonna go down the route of extreme exercising, extreme eating and like starving yourself, you're gonna suffer from an eating disorder, which is hugely, hugely dangerous. Mm. But also as well, you want them to understand, look, 
that if you are going to eat unhealthy, if you're going to eat all the sugary, you're going to eat all the, the fast foods, if you're going to become obese and become overweight, it's just as dangerous as the other extreme of going the other way. So what you want is to try and normalise things mm. into sensible. And I think if you look back, remember my grandmother who lived to 87 years of age, and my grandmother, remember, told me an important thing years and years ago, and not for any specific reason, she just said it. And, and she said to me, look, a little bit of everything and you can't go wrong. If you want to eat chips once a week, there's nothing wrong with it. You go mm. eating chips twice a day, you're going to have a problem. If you want to have a few beers in the week, there's not nothing wrong with it. You can have a few beers every day, you're going to have an issue. Yeah. So it's a, And this is what we, I think we've lost, is that... Middle because that, but that attitude doesn't get sense. you. That attitude doesn't get you the the kind of filter muscles. It doesn't get you the definition. Like even chips, once every they don't do that once every now and then thing because they are preaching extremism of dieting. But what I'm saying is, it's not about what they're preaching in terms of the diet. It's the message they're giving out by overrating the importance of looking like this. There's fat people out there who are happy. The uh, fat people have to exist. People who overindulge in things well, have course, to exist for society to and function. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you become extreme in in being overweight, yeah. you're putting a health of at course. Danger. Oh if yeah, of course. But that's no one's business. No one goes to them. You shouldn't be doing that cocaine at the weekend that you don't put up on your Instagram channel. Well, people should be. People should mm. be giving the education to the both sides. And but then they're called haters. They've developed a term called haters, which makes yeah, any well. valid point um, exempt from judgment. I think there needs to be more accountability on social platforms like Twitter, of course. Like, Twitter like Instagram, in making sure that we don't have extremisms. And the age. Exactly. Why would you as a parent allow your son or daughter at nine years of age to be on Twitter or on The government should have restrictions though. what age you're allowed. That should be heightened to 18. There should be. There needs to be. But something that, um, and this is something that you don't, people always talk about like how they recovered from the depths of, of mental health and they kind of make it seem like a climb that it's kind of like when your mate does his driving test for the first time and he's overrating to you how difficult it was just because he's proud that he did it. Um, it makes it seem like such an unclimbable climb, but as somebody who has recovered from the depths, like was there one particular moment? Because they do sometimes say that it can be weeks, it can be months, but it can be one comment or one experience with a fellow human that kind of touches a certain area of your psyche that goes, this isn't right. When you had, because you did, you did attempt to take your own life at one point. Is that true? Hmm. Was there a moment after that that flipped everything or, or what, what, what occurred there? I'm, as, I, as I said to you, you learn it's been well documented. I, I was struggling with my sexuality. I didn't want to be gay. knew nothing about being gay. Um, fighting against it. Because of that and spending a lot of time on my own and comfort eating, I became then overweight uh, and I became bulimic because I wanted to lose that weight. I wasn't happy in my body image. I'd gone too far overweight. Um, and then I went to the gym to put some muscle on, started using steroids. And then about 25, 26 years of age, I was in a very, very, very dark place. And I'd read somewhere that if you got chemically castrated, it would get rid of your sexual urges. And to me at that time, being gay was a sexual urge and nothing else. So... I mean, I pointed my doctor and I said, look, I think I'm gay. I don't want to be gay. Um, I want to be cured. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, I want to be chemically straight. And he said, no, it doesn't, it doesn't work like that, he said. So I left the doctor's surgery in a far worse state that I'd gone in there. And then a couple of weeks later, I thought, well, there's only one way out of this now. And I was in a, I'd gone 
to dark, dark place, and there was only one way I could see out, and that was to to take my own life. And I, and I did something one night, something that I will will regret for the rest of my life. Something I have to live with for the rest of my life. I left a note for my mum and dad, didn't tell them why. Um, and I'll never forgive myself of what they got up in that morning, when they read that note and thought they were never going to see their only child again, and the pain I must have put them through at that moment but also for a long time after that with the fear of living is he going to try it again so mm. i left the house I, I i won't tell you what i did because i, I don't want sort of people to sort of you know yeah think, exactly. oh, this is the way of taking your own yeah, life yeah. Not. please if you get to that stage speak to somebody because believe me when you get that second chance you realize how important it is and and that's why a lot of people don't talk about when they're in that dark dark places because they feel that the people that matter most. Did you genuinely want to die? Yeah, I did. Yeah, and they, they they feel that people are better off without them. So that's why people don't talk. You when you like go to burn. that moment where you're going to take your own life, people say, "I wish you had spoken to somebody about it." You don't because you honestly feel they're going to be better out, off without me. It's only when you get the second chance, like I did, you realize that people are worse off if you take your own life. When somebody takes your own life, or takes their own life, their family and friends. Their lives are ruined forever. They'll never be the same again. So I left the house. I got a second chance, thankfully. Uh, landed up in hospital, intensive care for a couple of days. The doctor came around and said, look, you're very, very lucky. He said, another 20, 30 minutes and you've been too late for us to save you. And then people came to visit. And this is the moment. This is the moment that, that changed my life. And this is the moment that my life was saved. After everybody left, my mum came back after visiting hours. And she said to me, she, I was sitting in bed in hospital, and she came back on her own and she said to me if you ever do anything like that again then you may as well take me and your dad with you because we don't want to live our life without you and she left and that's all she said and I just cried and I cried and I said to myself I am never never going to put the people that matter to me more than anybody in the world through something like that again of the pain I've caused them by not being here anymore mm -hmm. i need to be in their lives because that's what matters most to them and to me and i said to myself then i need to accept who i am this is who i am i, I there are many things in life you can choose you can choose either a good person a bad person what, what sport you follow where you live what job you do many many things in life you can choose one of the things you can't choose is your sexuality and i said to myself i have to accept who i am there is no choice this is this is who I am, and and that was the moment my life was saved. That is the moment that will stay for me with ever. When my mum came back, my mum is not with me anymore. She passed away ten years ago now. My dad is still alive, but those words I will never ever forget because there is no doubt that those those words saved my life and prevented me from. And and in a way, again. those words are very supportive because they were an expression of what you meant to people mm. but with mental health the complexity of it is that not everybody has the same support so like you said about the second chance you got and the regret you have but there mm. is some people who have a failed attempt then go again and and it yeah. works so the difficulty reasons. about it is because we have to view it as a disease like being mentally ill is like cancer it is like breaking your leg that's the stage we're getting to now where people are going yes but there's one outcome death yeah that's that's the like there is off cancer but there's so many different forms of mental illness we need to start knowing what our pancreatic our liver cancer mm -hmm. our lung cancer our testicular cancer is it is very similar to cancer because 
if you catch cancer early, there's there's a damn good chance that you can survive from it. Or worst case scenario is you'll be able to live with it for a long, long time again if you catch it early enough. If you don't catch it early enough, then the chances are you will end up losing losing your life. Mm. And mental health is very similar. If you catch it early, then and you accept the first thing you have to do is accept there are issues you need to do because unless you accept yourself, there's no way you can go to somebody and ask for help. Was yours so an in, episode or would yours be like would yours be something that continuously you're treated for or is it something that you've learned to no, accept you, yourself you, so you're fine I think with you, it? you first of all need to accept it yourself. I accept that I'm struggling with something. Mm-hmm. Once you accept, then you need to know how you can get help with it. Speaking to somebody, family members will help you, maybe people in work can help you professional help, whatever it may be. You also then, some people are unlucky that they don't have the family around them to help them and support them. And I was lucky. I had a family and friends around me that supported me, got through those difficult times after my suicide attempt to help me get through it. Others, unfortunately, are not that fortunate. Other, I know some, some parents who who chuck the kids out in the street at 15, 16 years of age because they've told their parents that they are gay. You that didn't, happens you didn't, today. You didn't come out straight after that episode? No, though. no, I didn't because I was still... How many years was it? I came out maybe nine years after and that was episode. And like, did your parents know before? Like, well, what, my mum you... said she sort of guessed there was something, but she didn't know until I actually And were you hiding? Her. Was there any incidents of like hiding from people? Like, yeah, was... you, were, you were still living a lie. You were still hiding. Sometimes you wouldn't go out in case you say something... In your beer, that would sort of, you know, you split it out. And you didn't want to be you were scared because there was nobody out in the macho world of rugby. And I'm pretty sure that if I was going through it today and I would have seen somebody like myself or Gareth Thomas out in the rugby world, knowing that they're able to get on with their lives and still continue in the sport that they love, then that probably would have helped me. Oh, I don't need to worry about whether rugby's going to accept. You and Gareth Thomas would have known each other when you were both still in the closet. Yes. And would you ever, like, was there any kind of, they say, that from a psychological standpoint, a gay man can kind of sense that somebody also has sexual leanings that are abnormal. Um, no, I know. I, I, I just look. I, I'd heard the stories or the rumors that Gareth was 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 gay, uh, like everybody else had in the rugby world at that time. But I didn't honestly didn't didn't know. And I, my, it's a gay dad that people call it, and my gay dad is awful. You know, I I am terrible. <laughs> I think in people say to me definitely he's gay. I said, get off, no, he isn't. Yeah. Or, you know, somebody I think, oh, is he gay then? And is there much more so rugby I'm... players? Like, it's still, we can say that we've made strides and we, we wear rainbow laces and we the gay referees all well and good, but where are the gay players? There has to be. Well, where there are. But, but maybe not normal, that 10%, that 10% probably doesn't exist in football and rugby like it does the rest of society. Because when you're gay from a young age, you would lean towards less machoistic. Yeah, that's, that's very true. Yeah. That, that is very, very true. Um, and also as well, I think, from my own experience, in my 20s, I was dealing with my sexuality myself. So there's no way that I could come out in my 20s and tell people because I was struggling with myself. So were you practicing homosexuality behind closed doors, though? Were you, were you yeah, were gay? Yeah, yeah. yeah. From the age of about 19, 20. Yeah, and did you have girlfriends? Did you have any of the front girlfriends that gay men kind yeah, of had, had to have? Yeah, I had a yeah. girlfriend for a couple of years and stuff like that. But see, a lot of, a lot of people in sport in particular... In their 20s, when, if you think of a sportsman's lifespan is probably sort of, you know, professional leader, for example, which we are talking about now, by no more people know the professional leader of rugby or football, from sort of 17, 18, 19 till 31, 32, 33 is the most of them. In that period of time, a lot of those people 
maybe dealing with the sexuality themselves, finding it difficult to accept themselves that they are gay. So there's no way that they can then come out and tell people that they're gay because they're dealing it with themselves. So that is a factor, I believe, why a lot of people are not out in, in sport. Mm. And also, when, when you're in that sort of shop window at the top of your game, whatever sport it is, people are going to take more notice of you. So if you come out as gay, people are going to start talking. About Some of those people don't want people to know, and that's fine. So there are many, many different reasons because people don't come out in sport or why more people are not out. And I think it's because they're dealing with themselves. They don't want people to know. And if you don't want people to know, people don't need to know. And there's also vulnerability behind kind of accidental sexual attraction. So if you are a gay man who's playing in an all-male sport, do you know what I'm saying? I'm not sure I agree with that, but that's the same as every walk of life. You know, saying like every married man is going to find a woman attractive when he walks down the street. No, absolutely not. Some do maybe, but it's the same as in in sport, you know? Yeah. Look... There are there are people out there that um, that you that I would look at and think, yeah, I find him attractive. It doesn't mean I'm sexually attracted to him. Oh, at of the course, time. yeah, but that, that's, that's the to, same. To even have that enter the mind could be distracting from a professional focus. Well, that could that's, that's I think that's the same in every any industry. That could be if you're in your office and. Are you allowed no players personally if you ref them? Like if you were seen having a pint, having a laugh with four lads who played for Saris, would they be like he's refing? He could ref Saris next season. This isn't fair. Do you have to surely purely shake hands and go see you later, see you next season? Yeah, you, you 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 tend to do most of the times. There are occasions where yeah, could you got them on their weddings if they rang you? Um, yeah, I was I was invited to go to a couple of Welsh players, Ryan Jones. I was good mates with when he was playing for Wales and captain of the Ospreys. I couldn't go to the wedding because I was away refereeing myself yeah. in the Southern Hemisphere, but I would have gone to the wedding. Um, yeah, look, you. If sometimes you land up in a bar with a couple of players, or you'll do you'll do an event. If I go and speak, probably different to me than maybe other referees, because yeah. there are occasions I will find myself in the presence of other players because of the nature of what I do. So if I was to go to 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 Dublin to speak in an event, and there could be an Irish player there as well, so you'd see them, you may grab a pint after and stuff yeah, like yeah. that. So, but when you're on that field, you are professional. I, I have a cousin who plays for the Scarlets. Really, yeah. Yeah, my my my, my second, my first cousin's son, my and second cousin. I'm, I'm very close. I've wrapped him a couple of times. It doesn't he doesn't expect to be treated any different, and he knows he wouldn't be treated any different. So you referee, and this is what and back to what I said to you earlier. People, unless you're a referee yourself, you just can't see what makes you a referee. Is that integrity? Is that honesty and fair play in treating people the same? So, if I was to referee a game. And I had 15 cousins playing in that team. It wouldn't make one bit of... If I had to referee Wales Island tomorrow, I would referee it just the same as I referee any other game. I wouldn't lean towards Ireland so that people would think that I'm not biased against Wales. And I wouldn't lean against Wales because I'm Welsh. I would just do my job and referee the game and I wouldn't have any problem with it. The problem would be maybe with some people who think that you are going to be bias but referees are not and sometimes I think to me for God's sake this is why people are a referee this is why maybe you're not a referee because you can't be um, unbiased in, in a situation and this is why when you referee a game and the team loses some of those supporters will think it's your fault the next game you referee a game the team wins then you're the best thing ever they just can't see that a referee's job is to do that job, and that's why we do it. So, no, you know, I don't have any problem. Now, I wouldn't go. Out, I wouldn't sort of go out of my way 
looking, oh, where are the players tonight? I'll go and have a pint with them. No, but if I bump into them, I'll have many, many players of all countries where, you know, I've sat down and had a pint with, had a coffee with, had a chat with a couple of players in all different countries where I've sat down and had a chat with because they've been asking me, you know, you know, questions about the laws of the game. Have, you ever, have I... you ever been a target for, like, um, obviously never engaged in it, but got a dubious email, anonymous letter, about making a few calls for underground kind of gangland betting syndicates? Do you know, never. Never at all. Not, not even a, a hint of it. Whether somebody has hinted and it's gone straight over my head and no idea what they were talking about, I mm. don't know. But never. Never ever. I can honestly say that. Because rugby have I would be approached. one of the easiest to get away with fixing as a referee because you could just go... <laughs> well, it could be in one sense because you could... There's so many different decisions to be made... But then on the other sense, there's so many points scored in the game that it's, you know, if you made one decision in football and a team wins 1-0, yeah. that one decision is huge. Yeah, you could get yeah. three calls wrong in rugby, but still it doesn't make a difference because the team scored another 30 points. So, And as a guy who started in 0-1 and is still refing in 2019, you've obviously seen players' average size completely explode. Would you be at all curious about whether or not doping is playing a role in modern-day rugby union? Personally, not not really myself. No, I, I'm sure that you know the, the provisions that are in place, um, and the information that the players and people have about what is acceptable, what you. But it makes do, it more entertaining if play if they're kind of throwing the odd blind eye to a drugs test within the game. The game's more entertaining if you're bigger and you're stronger and you're faster. Therefore, it sells more. Therefore, everyone within the game makes more no, money. I, I, wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I don't believe no. I don't think, no, I don't think... I don't believe in And just... In that. And before... I, I don't think that... You look at Shane Williams, one of the smallest players ever on the pitch, but one of the best players but ever he's, on the he, pitch. When, when, when was he at his peak? 10, 11 years ago? No, Shane would have peaked around, yeah, 7, 8 years But ago. I'm talking about the modern day winger who is 21 years of age and is 18 stone. And what are you doing? Weights twice a week? Because you're training and you're playing games. You're doing weights twice or three times a week. How are you getting that muscle you, mass? You, you, you look at the South African winger who plays with Toulouse. Fast, sharp, half the size of any other winger. And yet he beats most of them, leaving them standing there and because he's quick and sharp. So no, rugby is a game for all. So putting size on is not necessarily that... You know the way you'd be quite observant of a player? Does reputation, like, you know the way obviously someone like Dylan Hartley is such a... He's been suspended for over a combined year. If you, like, would you lean more towards... Because, you know, the way we always hear in commentary, but none of us are refs, his reputation went before him. Would that Does that occur? No. not not. Again, as a referee, you referee with an open mind what's in front of you. Yes, you know who the characters in the game are. Yes, you know the type of player who puts himself about it. Yeah. But you have to deal... On merit, what happens at the time? I never go into a game. If thinking, you see Hartley coming up from that ground, are you going for fuck's sake? And the uh, the hands on the yellow quicker than it would be no, if it was not, Rory not Best. Not at all. Not, no, not at all. And again, that just shows you how much shit you can pick up in the media and how complex the life of a referee is yeah. in comparison to those portrayed. And then you have to understand. You see, if the media, it's, it's the same for everyday newspaper. Nobody writes the good things that go on in this country, do they? Or in any country in the world. Everybody writes. The headlines are always the negative people love stuff. Complaining. Because people love complaining. People what and we're all at fault. We yeah. all want to read, oh, what's the you know, a headline about somebody, yeah. oh, what's this about? Now put on there sure, that we, we've complained. Put for on the, last there the great work that that guy has done and nobody'll read it. That's, yeah. that's human nature. So you have to understand sometimes. And it's a bit like social media. 
if you put on social media something good, people probably take that as that's the norm. You put on something there which is going to be a headline that's going to be bad, everybody will watch this about, you know, and that's the human nature. And we're all guilty of that, I believe. You know, we all go out and, you know, something comes on the news, headlines on the news. When have you ever heard the news and the headline is positive stuff? Mm. It's always something negative. What about injuries in rugby? And kind of, do you ever feel it's a bit gladiatorial and that you're the kind of guy in the middle conducting the orchestra who are at the end of the day breaking their bones to give themselves concussions for the entertainment of the masses yes they are well paid but do you find it slight, it's getting slightly concerning with how big no, and fast I these people are I don't think anybody's getting. going out there to get themselves concussion for entertainment no they're not no. but the injury rates why are skyrocketing why do you play rugby in the first place um, the first people, place yeah. why would people social acceptance depending on where you came from yeah maybe but what's, what's the main reason people play rugby because of the nature of the sport not just the, the camaraderie off the field, the physicality of it on the field, what it natures in you as a young person, the values of respect, the team ethos, being part of the team, yeah. help build your character. Yeah, no there are many, many different reasons. You play it because you like the contact, you like the tackles. If you don't, then you don't play it. Mm. You go to play another sport sometimes or you don't play the sport. So people play rugby because they love the game. It is a physical game. There are going to be injuries in the game. And that's why it's important that World Rugby and all the governing bodies, and I believe they're doing all they can in making the game as safe as they possibly can in an environment today where health and safety has become a hugely important part of, of, of everyday life, I believe, and, and quite rightly so in, in one extent, although sometimes it does go, go to the extreme again. So what you need to do is... You, you have to understand that rugby is a physical sport. There are accidents going to happen. So as long as you prepare people, people are coached as well as they can be knowing to get their techniques, the tackle techniques, the running techniques, as well as they can to avoid or, or reduce the risk of injuries. Yeah. Referees apply the laws. The laws are, are written in there to help reduce the risk of serious injuries. So the, the positives of playing a game like rugby the camaraderie, the integrity, the, the value of respect, what people learn about the game on and off the field, um, the value of playing in a team, the ethos and value of the game, um, the health side of it, you know, keeping yourself fit. Yeah. Everything like that outwaves all the little negatives, which unfortunately there can be injuries in rugby that are serious, but thankfully they've very few and far between and that's why it's important that that everybody involved in the game does as much as they can to reduce the risk of, of serious injuries and, and concussion and without you, changing rugby beyond you know the game that we recognise today because people won't play yeah. it you take tackling away from rugby yeah. people won't play it and obviously I'm a huge football fan and we've heard a lot of your quips uh, up close with players um, comparing their behaviour to that of a football player in, in a negative but humorous way. Do you actually like football or do I you do, just no, like I do, no, I enjoy football. Like when Wales got to the semis of the Euros, were you were you happy? I was, I was happy and I was supporting them and I enjoy I, I tend to watch more match of the day, the highlights, yeah. unless, you know, I'd, you know, like, I didn't watch the game on Saturday night because I was, um, um, I was out having dinner on Saturday night because I was refereeing on Sunday, but, I, you know, Liverpool Spurs, big European Cup final like our first time yeah, to yeah, these yeah. teams. So, 
Swansea City playing a big gig game when Newport County played against Man City. I watched it. So, you know, I'm I'm a Wrexham fan myself. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah, growing up. Yeah, I played football on the street. I was playing football before I played rugby. So yeah, I do yeah. enjoy football. I don't enjoy the rolling around, the lack of respect that goes on to everybody involved in the game, particularly to fish. Do you think it's due to the fact that they've got so much money now? And I think. And have you found that creep into rugby at all? Yeah, that it, it does. I think that's w- the main reasons in football. I also think it does creep into rugby, but. What we need to do in rugby is make sure that it doesn't lose its value and ethos of respect. Now, rugby can't take the moral high ground above football or any other sport. There's a lot of things that rugby can do better, needs to do better and needs to address. But I think one thing that rugby does do when those issues do arise in rugby, particularly on the respect side of things, rugby does tend to deal with them. It doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. You know, we... But well, players are going to France now and sacrificing their international careers. That is a step in the way of And that's an individual commercial. choice that they need. And it's going to become more common, though. Like, players' money is going to start talking and the whole kind of ref- referees having that authority over players, which is it's probably the only profession in the world where you can speak to multi-millionaires in such an authoritarian way. But that is because of the values of rugby that's instilled in those people. Do you think they'll stay with people. the wages getting higher? Yeah, and not because... it's. Rugby does not only instill that in the rugby player himself, that value of respect. It also, I believe, contributes a lot to them becoming good citizenships, good citizens, good good people when they're off the field as well. And that's why it's hugely important. And when people do cross that line, and it does happen in rugby, that the rugby and governing bodies, they do deal with it. We on the field as referees, when players cross that line, of what is acceptable behaviour in any shape or form, we deal with it as referees. And when I go back to that, I enjoy watching football, as I said to you. A lot of my mates, most people in rugby would support a, a football team or enjoy watching football. Mm. Um, and in that game out in, in Munster Treviso with with with, uh, with a scrum half, Tobias Portes, I'd been watching a football game. I can't remember what game it was in that week. And the players were just rolling around. They were surrounding the referee. They were complaining every decision the referee made. And even my the most ardent of my football mates were going, oh, God's sake, we'll just get on with the game. you know. And that's what most people, most sensible people in football will say the same thing. Yeah, It needs to be dealt with. So I was refereeing this game in, in, in Munster Treviso. And the, I hadn't refereed Treviso for, or Bennett on the call now. I hadn't refereed them for about... Five or six years. So I was refing them for the first time in this period of time. A couple of players I knew on the field I ref before. A lot of them I didn't. And this scrum half, Tobias Porters, was starting to complain about my decisions. He was now waving up arms in the air. I was giving decisions and he was coming after me and saying, oh, they're doing this. And I said, and the first thing that went through my mind, I thought to myself, I don't think I've refed this guy before because if I had, he'd know better than come and give me some back chat because yeah. I'll deal with it. That's what went through my mind. And I thought, okay, so I just left it there. And then the next thing, he did it again. And I said, right, come here. And I said, look, I'm not sure. I don't think we've met before. So this wasn't a prepared line of, I want to get this line out there. Yeah. It exactly what I was thinking in the beginning of that game. I don't think I've refed him before. So I, caught, I said to him, look, I don't think we've met before. But I'm the referee on this field. Um, it's you do job, I'll do mine. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that decision. This is why he was given it. Now, if, you, if I hear you shouting for anything again, I'm going to penalise you because this is not soccer. Because it's exactly what yeah. I was... Th- and most people were thinking. Yeah. You know? So it just happened naturally. And some people say, oh, Nigel Owens comes out with these one-liners just to be on YouTube. Yeah. No. It's the last... I say things in the game sometimes. 
And all of a sudden, it's on were social media. Were you saying media. them before, even when you were refing in 97 when it wasn't on TV? Um, well, I'm not sure if the value of disrespect in football was a bad back then, was it? Whereas it is now. Yeah, I think no. it's with the way money has gone into the yeah, game yeah, now, yeah, yeah. I think has, has made it a lot worse than it is, I, I, I believe. Um, and, and people say, oh, Nigel is just saying this to get on YouTube. I said, no, Nigel Owens is just doing his job. And this is who I am. I'm just being, I'm just being myself. I don't say these things. I come off a game sometimes and people say, oh, that was so funny today. You're all over social media. And I go to myself, Really? People think that's funny? Yeah. What I said was, it's the same as the ball boy incident in Leinster. What about the one where you said, I'm straighter than that about the line out throw? And, uh, that's that's quite clearly comedic though, isn't it? Like, yeah, but I didn't say it because I thought people would find yeah, it funny. Yeah, you're saying it to the lads. It was checked in. It was the worst throw in the line that I've ever seen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 and we wore the hooker, we threw it in. It went pretty much to, to the scrum half's hands and Danny Kerr. So he checked it in and I could see everybody was sort of going, you know, like that. The hooker went bright red in the face thinking, oh my God. and it was an awkward moment yeah. when somebody was expecting to say something and nobody said anything. And I just said to him, I said, he just looked at me like this. And I just said, you know, I'm straighter than that one. <laughs> and he just laughed and he thanked me afterwards. Oh, thanks for saying that. It really took the heat out yeah, of the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I just said it because that's exactly what I thought, you know, not because I thought... It's going to be a, a hit. On, it's the same with the ball boy incident in Leinster. Where you gave him the this yellow. Is, yeah. This is who I am. This is the way I was brought up when I was younger, on and off the field. The ball was thrown in, caught me the back of the head. I just looked at him. The ball boy was standing there. He was distraught. He just goes like this, yeah. expecting me now to give him a, a mouthful. Yeah. And I just went over, got my yellow card off and laughed and smiled. Yeah. And over shook his hand. And people were saying, oh, that was brilliant. What a wonder. And I was thinking this, really? Isn't? Doesn't, don't people think that's just a, a normal thing yeah, to do in a situation like that? Yeah. And my final question for you is, Nigel, the last rugby game I ever played, uh, the out half of the opposing team was in a school's cup game. It was um, quite a traumatic moment for me. And the opposing out half kicked the ball over the top. I was on the wing, a bit of a Shane Horgan figure, dodgy knee, pretty slow. And I turned and ran after the ball. So me and the opposition winger got into a foot race. And whilst we were running for the ball, I just gave him a very slight tug on the back of a jersey. They scored a try anyway because they had another player running after the ball too. And I got yellow carded for that. Would you give a yellow card for such an offence, just a slight tug on the jersey when running back? Now you, you, you take in context a lot of things here. And this is what people don't understand, you see. So if you were looking at that, you're thinking, oh, that's a bit harsh for the yellow card. Yeah, okay? it was so harsh. Yeah. Right. So Disgraceful. You've given, a, you've given a tug. You haven't really made any difference. They scored the try anyway. Yes. So you think, oh, no, that's not a yellow card. So Nigel Owens says no yellow. Nigel Owens would say, hey, don't do that again. Next time you could be in a bit of trouble. But not a yellow okay? from Nigel Owens. Yes. But, but a no, yellow but, from Paul this, Haycock. But, Imagine that. But this, this is the difference. If you'd have done that twice before in the game, and I'd have told you, hey, that's the second time you've done that, now don't do it again. Yeah. And you do it a third time, then I'd be saying, hey, look, I've asked you twice, you're clearly not listening, off you go. So in context, in that one moment, no yellow card. Take in context what you've done twice before in doing that, and yeah. you still haven't listened to me. So no game. yellow, no yellow whatsoever. Well, and just, did you do it twice before? And actually, just because I, I was going one off, once off, one first okay, instance. In, in um, bloodgate, real quick. When he put the blood tablet in, he bled it. It came out of his mouth. Obviously, he sensed none of that was going on um, at the time. A, are you allowed ref Dean Richards matches anymore based off the fact that you were in 
the ref when he committed such a fraudulent crime? And B, how how nuts was it when you found out what it, what it went down? I, I again go back to you and. When you referee a game, it doesn't matter who's on the field. What they've done in the past, what they may do in the future, what kind of player they are, what nationality they are, it doesn't matter. You referee the game. It makes no difference whatsoever. So to answer your question, would I referee a team that... Are you allowed, though? Are you allowed? Of course, why wouldn't you? Even though you've had that experience of him acting in a fraudulent manner... Would there not be an assumption what's, what's that, that got to do with me? Would they not think that you might be a bit dubious about like his substitutions no, or tactics? Again, you referee what's in front, in front of you. Of you. Okay. you referee the game fairly and judge it on what happens at the time, not what you think may happen or what has happened. And and that's the only way you can referee. If you can't do that, then you're not a referee. And you, and got, you won't be referee. And you're and will this be your last World Cup that you're going to now? Yeah, it'll be my last last World Cup, yeah. In yeah, fact, yeah. is that fitness or just what? No, my, my touch wood, my fitness at the moment is fine. Um, but, you know, I, I'll be 48 in a couple of weeks' time. And then you have to be realistic and think, well, you know, will I be this fit in 52 years' time? Yeah, in 50, at 52. In, in, in 50, yeah. When I'm 52, probably not. I, I may well be. And if, if I'm this fit next year, it, it all then comes down to the powers to be then what, what they want. Do they want to say, look, now look, Nigel, you know, we want to bring the next group of referees through now because you're not going to be out for the next World Cup. Or they say, well, look, you're refing well enough. You're still fit enough. Yeah, you carry on refereeing. So it'll probably be my last World Cup. Whether this will be my last season coming up, I don't know yet. It may well be. It, it, it may not. Depends on the body and the form and the fitness and, and of course, on, on other circumstances as well. All right. Well, Nigel's been insightful, open and honest. And I appreciate you coming on to the show. And I hope you, I hope you uh, enjoyed it. MA show. My pleasure.